take your Bibles and open up to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, we'll read all 14 verses, but we're only going to look at 10 this morning. And then Christmas morning, we'll look at those last ones as they tie the whole chapter together. Really a continuation of chapter 4 into chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. John writes, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sits on the throne a scroll, written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. Then I was crying greatly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop crying. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came, and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sits on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one having a harp and a golden bowls, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you made them to be a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads and myriads, and thousands of thousands, saying with one loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb, Be the blessing and the honor and the glory and the might forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Father, we come now to study together, to look to your word here in these two chapters where John is caught up into heaven, where he sees into this future moment where... Christ takes these things and the events that are about to take place in the future of judgment in chapter 6, they begin with him taking his rightful place here in chapter 5. Help us to see that Christ is worthy, that he is exalted even now and even then as he is the one who is able to take these things. We just pray that you would be honored in our time. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, I just want to say a quick word of thanks to those who helped out this week. I know Jay or uh, Joel mentioned a little bit, uh, but it was neat to see how the Lord worked. And I know your ministry to the freeze is appreciated. Uh, Toby's not here. If you're looking for him, uh, he actually is back at it and um, is on call this morning. So that's where he is. But I know he'd want me to extend just a thank you to um, you all and your
prayers and your support uh, this week. Uh, for those who were unable to attend Wednesday, um, I taught, preached out of Ecclesiastes 7. In one sense, an appropriate place that you might have heard it at a funeral before, and in another place, another way, maybe not as common because most of you probably haven't been in Ecclesiastes lately. Uh, but in Ecclesiastes 7, he twice says it's better to be in the house of mourning than to be in the house of feasting. And it's not to say that the house of mourning or a funeral is a good thing. It is to say, though, there are things that come out of that. You reflect differently at a funeral than you do at a house of feasting or at some kind of party. And the idea is rooted back in the first verse, the premise, which is in Ecclesiastes 7.1, better is a good name than good oil. In the Old Testament, oil would be similar to what we would consider as, as something that is, is valuable, riches, wealth. And so to have a good reputation is better than that. And what Solomon is saying there is that what that moment that we've all kind of experienced as, as a church in the last week of seeing someone who is young, who is not here, and to see life in that reality of its shortness, that it's a good moment and a necessary moment to stop and evaluate our lives. And you only do that in that unique way when you are confronted with it. And it makes all of us dwell uncomfortably with the, the shortness of life. And so just kind of looking into this week and last week, and I just kind of it, find God's providence in that we are here in Revelation. We are going to be here. That was my intention on the human level, but also clearly what the Lord had for us as we are exalted in chapter 4 into heaven after we've seen the seven churches and John addresses them, the things that are and the things now that will be. And so four, we're transported to the future. And so kind of orienting yourself in the book of Revelation, this is about a future vision that, or a vision of the future where John sees this is what will be. So this is something that is yet to come, but yet we understand it will come. And we'll work through it. And there are some of the typical things in Revelation where it is symbolic and it becomes a little difficult at times, but he assumes you know your Old Testament well, and we're going to see a lot of this imagery, including the scroll, come out of the Old Testament. But it comes back to what we looked at last week in chapter 4, this whole idea that the Lord is worthy. He is worthy not only to judge, he's the creator, and we saw the hymn of creation at the end of chapter 4, but that he is worthy of worship because he is the redeemer, and they're going to sing that song both in 9 and 10, and then next week as we look 12 through 14. But everything comes back to he is worthy, and this is why he is worthy, and this is why he is worthy of praise. So I hope this morning as we look at the worthiness of Christ, we find a level of discomfort here as well, because we're going to find ourselves yet again uh, with John in heaven before the throne. The 24 elders, which I think represent the church, uh, the raptured church there, are falling down and they are worshiping but there's one who's worthy of approaching the throne. If you remember back to the angels, we talked about them last week, the, the four creatures, the four living creatures. The seraphim, the Old Testament talks about them. They had the, the six wings, two to cover their eyes, two to cover their feet, and two to hover around the throne. And that's because even them, they're not able to look upon Christ. But one is worthy here who's able to approach that throne. And that level of discomfort, I don't think I need to convince anyone here this morning that we are not adequate. We are not worthy. We are not equipped to boldly approach the throne apart from Christ. It's a little bit as if I said, hey, does anyone want to come up here and preach this morning and you had not prepared anything? I 
doubt very many of us would jump at that chance, myself included. But I, I like, I'm not prepared. I, I, I'm not, I don't have that ability. I, you, you understand, it's something I can't do. And we're going to meet Christ here at the throne where he is able and the only one able to do this very thing, which is to take the scroll, which represents, we're going to see here in a moment, of his authority. So look with me at verse 1 of chapter 5. And we're reminded here in these first four verses, being oriented, that we're in heaven. The 24 elders are there. The, the seraphim are around the throne. We have this idea here later that it's myriads and myriads, thousands of thousands. And so we think both of those numbers are representative. And then I saw verse 1 in the right hand of him. So that is God the Father on the throne. He is sitting there. Then he has a scroll in his right hand written inside and on the back and sealed up with these seven seals. And so the scroll is rolled up. Not able to be read inside, just simply on what is on the outside. It seems that the seals are visually represented or seen by John. But it is written and it is complete. And the question here isn't so much does someone have the strength to break the seals open. Because if you have an idea of, we don't have scrolls today, we have books. But if you rolled up something and you stamped it, you have kind of an old idea of where they wax seal it. It's not hard. It's not an issue of strength. You could break those seals. The question of this and this imagery is of a will, of a testament, of, of a deed, a contract. And who is worthy? Who is authorized to break it? Who has the right to break it? You have to have the authorized person. Many of you have gone through the wonderful process of buying a home and you've had all those papers thrown before you and you really just can't sign the title kind of page and call it good, right? No, you got to sign every single document. You got to bring in a notary and the notary has to notarize every single document. You have to have the authorized person signing it in every single page for you to get that deed. This way in which the scroll represents the title deed. The title deed to everything. The title deed, as some call the title deed to the universe. To all that the Father has promised. It is the scroll, we'll see, containing what is it. All of the judgments to come, the, the bull judgments, the seals being broken. All that's coming in Revelation 6 and forward. And even the redemption of the world. It evokes this image. You can see on Ezekiel and Isaiah. And so, so often as we've seen, this Old Testament language. Ezekiel 2, 9 and 10. Then I looked. And if you know much about Ezekiel 1 and 2, it's very similar to Isaiah. It's very similar to prophetic literature. And it's kind of wild because he's going to be asked to eat the scroll. But it's to symbolize something. But it says there that I looked and behold, a hand was sent forth to me. And behold, a scroll was was in it. Then he spread it out before me, and it was written on the front and the back, and written on it were lamentation, sighing, and woe. This idea that the scroll there contains these judgments that are about to come. Isaiah 29, 11, The entire vision will be to you like the words of a sealed book or a sealed scroll, which when they give it to the one who is literate, saying, please read this, he will say, I cannot, for it is sealed. Same idea in Daniel, Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7, that he is to seal it up until the day 
which is coming, future for us, but here for John, he is there, and this is the day for John's, for us, future, but we're transported to see this is the day where those seals are broken, and the book is open. The language of those Old Testament passages are brought together. Similar wording and the common theme of this sealed book of concealing divine revelation, divine judgments. As I said, it's to be understood in this background, this backdrop of legal documents. So not just the Old Testament, but Roman times. The contents of a will, particularly, they bear striking similarities. The contents of such a will in Roman times would be sometimes summarized on the back. It's sealed, but what is that? We're pulling it out. You can't open it, but you can see, oh, this is the summary of what it's, or who is it for, and who can open it. A will in Roman times had to be sealed and sealed by seven witnesses. That idea of seven being perfection or fullness, that it's perfectly sealed. And only on the death of the tester could a will be unsealed and a legal promise of inheritance be executed. And a trustworthy executor would then put the will into legal effect. Again, it has to do with who is authorized, who is able to, to break these seals. Because what we see here is this similarity of looking for who is able. Because we see verse 2, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break it. Break its seals. That's the question that causes John to weep. Because the whole world is searched and no one is found. It says, verse 3, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and to look into it. So John, verse 4, says, then I was crying greatly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it to see what it says to accomplish its purposes. No one is found worthy. No one meets these qualifications out of you and I or anyone else. Great rulers, great kings, no one is worthy until we see and we meet that there is one who is. And he is going to be told, go ahead and stop. You're crying, John. There is no need, but rather rejoice. Christ is going to be found worthy. This goes all the way back to the very beginning of your Bibles. This is Genesis 1 and 2. This is where you see the connection between the beginning, Genesis, and the end, Revelation, and this connection to a promise for redemption, that there would come one from the seed of Eve who will crush the serpent's head. And not only that, but at the very beginning, Adam is given something which is this authority over the earth that he is supposed to have authority over it, but he forfeits that authority. But Christ, as Romans says, the last Adam is the one to inherit it. Why? Because he was what Adam was not. It would seem that this scroll is meant to be opened by someone who is human. That's part of it. But not just any human, one who is fully God, fully man, and is perfect. Therefore, Christ is going to be found worthy, not only because of his innocence and his perfection, but because he is the one who accomplished redemption through his sacrifice on the cross. He's also considered worthy because he doesn't stay 
in the ground, but he is raised again. Therefore, Christ is able to inherit these promises of the scrolls. There is, there was a plan. I think that brings comfort, despite chaos, confusion in the world, and not knowing why things happen all of the time. There is an ordered plan which cannot be thwarted. And indeed, it's already, in that sense, taking shape and taking form. And it's with that backdrop that we can really jump into what we see in verses 5 going forward and discover these reasons. We're going to look at just three that Jesus is worthy. In verse 5, the first reason we're going to see is he's worthy because of who he is. He's worthy because of who he is. And so in verse 5, it's inappropriate. You don't cry in heaven over and over again. You, you see multiple places, both Isaiah, you see it in the end of Revelation, that it, in heaven it is where Christ wipes away every tear. There's no reason, John, for you to be crying, but yet you understand because he's going, where is this one who can open the scroll? And so one of the elders says out to John, stop crying. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the scroll and its seven seals. We're going to see these unique titles given to Christ. The first of which is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And the reference here is all the way back into the tribe of Judah, established one of the sons of Jacob, Genesis 49, where Jacob prophetically says that you will receive the scepter, Judah, and it will never leave your hand. That is, out of him is the one who will be the ruler. He isn't the oldest, but he is the one who is, out of the sons, the rightful ruler. And so we understand why is it the lion, why it is, it is the tribe of Judah. It's because out of Judah becomes the ruler. The image of the lion talks, we understand that. Even to this day, you view the lion as one who is dignified, one who is kingly over the animal kingdom. Interestingly enough, if, if you remember back to watching the Disney movie, The Lion King, uh, in Swahili, the word for king is Simba. So every once in a while you go, oh, that wasn't that clever. Right? You name him Simba. Why? Because Simba means king. But Simba also just simply means lion because the lion is known as the king. Jesus Christ is the only living Jew, we saw that in Matthew, who can prove his kingships. And he proves it not only in who he is and his miracles, but he does so by who he is from his heritage, that he is a son of David. And that is why when you get to Matthew, which many of you will read over the next coming days for Christmas, it's important. A book that is Matthew written to Jewish people, that they understand Christ is who he says he is. You can trace his line and see that he is a son of David. He's also the root of David, this same idea, which means he brought about David. So he's not just the son of David, he is the root. That is, he is Something different. He's not just a son or a grandson or a great-great-grandson. He is this idea of the root of David who has overcome. He had his heritage from David, yes. But he also is fully God. That is, he was born of a virgin, of a manger, by the Spirit. 
He is the Ancient of Days. We've seen that association in Isaiah. We've seen that association throughout Revelation. He's not just a man. And so that question in Matthew that Jesus poses to them, how can David say, how can it be David's Lord and David's son? And the answer to that question in Psalm 110 is that God, uh, Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And so he is the root of David, but he's also here, the lamb. So verse 6, it says, Then I saw in the midst of the throne the four living creatures in the midst of the elders, a lamb standing as if slain. You're going to see the description here, which we'll leave for a moment, but of seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. The lamb is used as an image over and over throughout all of Scripture. Early in the sacrificial system, early in the Exodus, when they take a spotless lamb who is slain and the blood is put over the post of the home so that the angel of death will pass over. It's used 28 times in the book of Revelation. So we're going to see the lamb, the lamb, the lamb, the lamb. And there's two creatures in the animal kingdom that you don't necessarily put side by side. You don't think of someone being a lion and a lamb. You don't think of someone being deadly and, well, let's just say most lambs are not viewed as dangerous. One you can safely pet and be around and one you you best not be around. But this picture is there describing the lamb. As I said, throughout Revelation, you're going to see the wrath of the lamb in Revelation 6. You're going to see cleansing is by the blood of the lamb in Revelation 7. The bride of the lamb, talking of the church later in Revelation 19 and 21. The theme of the lamb, it's important and vital that we understand that throughout all of Scripture. It was John the Baptist at the beginning of Mark, or actually John, where it says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And now in Revelation 5, you're going to see the, the, the thing they sing, the chorus they refrain over and over again is, Worthy is the Lamb. And the description of that Lamb is strange, yes, but it's communicating important truths. That he is a Lamb who he says, as if slain. And so the lamb would seem to be a lamb who is, yes, moving, but has mortal wounds. Which we understand, understand Christ was crucified, yet lives. But even Thomas, you can see the, the wounds in the, his hands and his feet and his side. This lamb has those wounds as if slain. But he is, again is resurrected and, and is moving. But he also has these seven horns and seven eyes, which is, I imagine, unlike any lamb you've ever seen. And it's not meant to say there's a lamb like that. It's much to say this is representative. This idea of perfection we've seen over and over again. The sevens. That seven horns out of perfect strength. Perfect power. Seven eyes. Omniscience. That is he knows all. He sees all. And then that description which are the seven spirits. Which is simply is a phrase we've seen twice before. Of the spirit of God that is Perfect. And is sent out into all of the earth. And this is the image that John sees. Perfect power, perfect wisdom, perfect presence. This lamb is, yes, the appearance of one that is slain, but becomes one as an image here of strength. One who will come, one who will conquer. 
We worship Christ, firstly, because of who he is, which is he is both the rightful Messiah, the son of David. He is rightfully the lamb and the lion who is sacrificed for us. But secondly, we worship him because of where he is. Kind of going back into verse 6 here, you're going to see he is standing where no one else can stand. He's standing, one, in, in heaven, which we're going to celebrate Christmas this week, seven days from now. But here you don't find him in a manger. You don't find him in Jerusalem. You don't find him on the cross. You don't find him in the tomb. You find him in heaven, exalted in heaven. The king is enthroned here at the end of days. And when he returns, he's going to return both to save his people, which we've seen, which they're going to sing that song, and then also the judgment of the world that is to come. Seeing the picture of Christ in chapter 1, that vision of Christ, he is, yes, the lion and the lamb. But let's just we'll flip back there real quick to Revelation chapter 1. You remember the vision that he saw of the Son of Man, chapter 1. That in the middle, verse 13, of the lampstand I saw, John says, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his sash or chest with a golden sash. And his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze when it was been made to when it's been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters, and having in his right hand the seven stars which we know from the rest of this chapter, those are the seven churches, and the sharp two-edged sword which comes out of his mouth, and his face was like a sun shining in its power. And John appropriately, verse 17, does what? When I saw that, when I seized Christ, I fell at his feet like a dead man. It's a reminder that you have the balance between the lion and the lamb, the one who is, yes, coming, to redeem, but also coming to judge. He's in the center of all that transpires in heaven. All creation is going to center on him, whether it's the, the angels, the, the four living creatures, whether it is the God's people, his church, the elders, the 24 elders, the angels around the throne encircle Christ, and they are praising him. He's not just in heaven. He is at the throne. We just had the little kids all sing. Come, praise, worship the humble king, which is good, which is right. But here in Revelation, he's not just the humble king, right? He is the conquering king who is able now to take this scroll and to rightfully judge and reclaim this earth, this world. We need to balance those truths that we celebrate at Christmas with the truths of Christ coming again. I like the way one preacher put it this way, that we do not worship a babe in a manger or a corpse on a cross. We worship the living, reigning Lamb of God who is in the midst of all in heaven. It's where he stands. It's where we see him because he is worthy. He is worthy of worship because of where he is. And lastly, in verses 8, 7, 8, 9, 10, you're going to see that he is worthy because of what he does. You could say what he has done and what he is doing and what he will do because of what he does. What he does here 
is because of what he has done in the past that he is worthy and he is able to take the scroll. Verse 7, it says, He came and he, he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sits on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one having a harp and a golden bowl of, bowls of in, full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood people from every tribe, every tongue, people and nation. And you made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God that they will reign upon the earth. When the lamb comes and takes the scroll, the weeping ceases and the praising begins. God's people representative here of God's creation, join with their voice to sing a new song of praise. Isaiah 42, which is one of Isaiah's songs of the servant. So think Isaiah 53, Isaiah 42, talking about the Messiah. In that context, which actually is interesting because it's a context of judgment, but in the midst of that, because he's going to judge and make all things right, Isaiah 42, 10 says, Sing to Yahweh, that is the Lord, a new song. Sing his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea as well as its fullness, you coastlands, those who inhabit them, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voices. The villages where Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing aloud. Let them shout for joy from the tops of the mountains. Let them give glory to Yahweh and declare his praise in the coastlands. Yahweh will go forth like a warrior. In the context of Isaiah 42, you see singing a new song, but also what's going to happen in chapter 6 next, not next week, but in two weeks when we get there, he'll go forth like a warrior, and he will awaken his zeal like a man of war, and he will make a loud shout indeed. He will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. The new song they are about to sing together is this praise for what he is doing in taking the scroll, what he will do, but also what he has done, as we'll talk more the prayer and the praise is, is united together. The elders fall down before the Lamb. They're together. It talks about the prayers of the saints being offered up in this bowl of incense. A pleasing aroma to God. All of the Old Testament, you think of all the things they did. And this is that same picture that is pleasing to the Lord. This song that they sing is one of worship, one centered on Christ. To begin with thinking of that, of, of worship, it is that he is worthy. It simply means when you say he is worthy that this is something valuable. It is of worth. It is something that is weighty, something that deserves to be worshipped. And he alone here is worthy. It's a worship him in heaven that is, no surprise, God-centered, Christ-centered. Yes, their description of what he has done for them, that he has purchased with his blood a people, which would include those that are there worshiping, the 24 elders, but it is focused on him. Not just their experience, but the object of their worship. It's a gospel song, a gospel hymn, because you were slain and you were purchased for God with your blood, people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. 
Heaven continues to sing about what Christ has done and what he will do. His song is one which he is doing these things with purpose. That it is a, some would say, a a missionary song that sinners redeemed out of all kinds of people. If you go back to probably the most well-known Bible verse for most people, John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What does it mean he loves the world? Well, again, out of the world, there is, he's came, particularly in the name of John, written not to Jews, but like Matthew, but John, written to Gentiles. He's loved not just the Jewish people, but through them, he has loved the whole world. He has died for people from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. His desire for that message is to be taken to not just Jerusalem, but to Judea and to the ends of the world, as we see in Acts. And so you look back at verse 9, and you say they're singing this new song, that worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, people from every tribe, every tongue, people and nation. Why? Because he did it with a purpose that they would be this idea of a kingdom and priest to our God, and that they will reign upon the earth. And so similar to the Old Testament, similar to in the New Testament, say in First Peter, where the church is talked about as kingdom of priests, is that you're to be God's representatives. And that one day, in a different way, as we'll see throughout Revelation, they will, we, the church, the church says they will reign with Christ. And so the church Praise this, looking forward to this, when Christ will establish in his kingdom on this earth. That when you pray the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy, thy will be done, that we understand one day there's a sense in which we go out and we are citizens of the kingdom, but there's also a sense in which we long when that is a real kingdom here where Christ reigns in justice and in power. There's a song to say that he is worthy. And no surprise, he continues. We're going to see next week, verse 11 through 14, this song of worthy as he continues to sing of the lamb who was slain. And so throughout chapters 4, chapter 5, we've seen this idea that the Lord is worthy to judge and redeem. And therefore, he's worthy of worship. He is the lion. He is the lamb slain for his people. So as I think this week, especially as you reflect on these truths, he is worthy because of who he is. Think of where he is at the throne and what he has done, what he will do in the future as he takes the scroll. He is the one able now to finish, to actually deal out both judgment and redemption. We should let these truths inform how we worship and how we celebrate, even this coming week of Christ's birth. For he not only came, but he is coming again. And each of us does not know if we have tomorrow, which has been made evident to each one of us. But we're called to live in light of his return, in light of the truth that he's both a redeemer and a judge. And we're left meditating on these truths and the relationship we have with him, as I spoke last week. Is he a judge or is he a redeemer to each of us? 
Each one of us is going to have to give an account for our own lives, our own sin, and have we repented of our sin and put our faith and trust in Christ. Do we live in such a way where we are excited about this truth, where we in our own souls say, worthy is the Lamb, that we would see it, we recognize it, and we believe He has died for us. Because if you understand it, and it is personal, then you see this passage, and you want to be right there singing together here with them, looking forward as He comes. And so we're going to sing now a hymn, which we've sung a few times, See He Comes, and a fitting way, I think, to sing the words and hymn of the Lord's return. So let me pray, and then we'll sing together. Father, thank you for our time. We do hope to exalt you as we sing together. We do pray that you would come, even as Revelation ends. Come, Lord, come. We recognize that there's a real sense in which our lives are short and fleeting, and even a sense in which this world is short and fleeting. And we get used to things being the same day in and day out. But let moments that jar us help us reflect on the things that matter most and the way that we should prioritize the way that we live, the things that we do, the things that we worship, even as we have spent last week, this week, and next week before the throne of heaven here in Revelation, that it would impact the choices we make and the way that we live. We just pray this in your son's name. Amen.